The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Welcome again. That ten minutes went by very quickly. Uh, here we are back again. Welcome. We have a few new folks that have joined us this morning. And uh, those of you online, don't worry. Plenty of social distancing here in the auditorium. Uh, yeah, so it's good. It was actually it was getting a little cool in here uh, a few minutes ago, but I didn't have my suit jacket on, so now I'm going to be warmer up here. Uh, but that's the difficulty with having the fresh air coming in nonstop 100% of the time. Uh, it uh, doesn't always heat. It's sometimes just the pure fresh air coming in. So let's take our Bibles and turn... Uh, in them this morning to Isaiah in the ninth chapter. We have been reading, whoops, in Isaiah, little by little. And uh, as it turns out, we've come to a portion that has something relative to our present holiday situation. Not all of it, though. We will have a bit of reading that has to do with God's judgment. But it begins in Isaiah chapter 9, this way. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You might remember that being quoted in the Gospels when the Lord lived in Nazareth and then in Capernaum. The light had shined then upon those people in Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse number 3, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Why? Verse 6 answers, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. This is why the great joy. This is why they expect that the oppressors will be removed from them. The son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. I don't put the comma there between those two. I think they come in pairs. Wonderful Counselor is the first pair. Mighty God is the second. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are the descriptions of our Lord Jesus. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. That is, as good as it gets, it will only get better. It will not get worse. And if you think it's as good as it can be, it's only going to increase even further. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
new subject matter. The Lord sent a word against Jacob and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Him and the inhabitant of Samaria who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off the head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Is it any wonder that chapter 10 opens with the word woe? Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. God's hand is stretched out there in judgment in the history of Israel, but He promises the gloom will not remain forever as a pall over that land. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel again this morning. We were in chapter 3 earlier. We're going to be back in chapter 1, going backwards in time a little bit here. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse number 67. Brother, it's good to see you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Luke 1. 67. Introduction to the message. I gave this, I gave a, a shorter version of this message. This is the revised, uh, how can I say, the revised and expanded edition, lucky for you, uh, that I'm giving today of a message that I can't believe, but it's true, that I preached it 14 years ago from this pulpit. So, some of you haven't heard it. That's just a whisper. Yeah, but some of you haven't heard this message and I've gone through and improved on it and I want to share it with you this morning. It's one of the great Christmas passages of Scripture to deal with and it's entitled the Benedictus. The Benedictus uh, refers to Zacharias' prophecy in verses 67 to 79 after he had regained his ability to speak. It doesn't tell us these were the very first words that he spoke, but it was close to the very first words and may in fact have been the very first words that he spoke. Now, that would kind of make sense 
if you've had about nine months to think over what you're going to say next, uh, you haven't been able to speak, um, that might do us some good, but you know, maybe not nine months if you want to just think a little bit before you speak. That would be good. Uh, but he had a long time to ponder and mull this over. And God had revealed to him some things while he was in the temple serving that uh, he couldn't wait to get off of his uh, chest, so to speak. And, uh, and God had evidently revealed to him even more as he thought about what was happening with his own son, John the Baptist. Now, the term Benedictus comes from the Latin of the first word. You know, we've been in Latin this morning a couple times. Not that I know anything about Latin. Some of you folks probably know a little bit about it, but uh, we were speaking earlier, brother, about the term leveret marriage. And it has nothing to do with Levi. It has to do with the word levir, L-E-V-I-R, which is from the Latin meaning brother-in-law or husband's brother. That's when a husband's when a husband dies, then his brother would marry the widow and pro, uh, promote the family line uh, through that means. But in here we have the Benedictus, the Latin term of the first word of Zacharias' proclamation, which is, Blessed be God. That's how he starts. Just like the first word of Mary's uh, speech in verse 46. If you look back there, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And the first word in Latin is magnificat. The magnificence, the, uh, the, uh, the magnification of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord. And so that's where those titles come from. There is separated between the two declarations about three months. You remember that Mary went to see her relative uh, Elizabeth and uh, had you know went there about the time that uh, she was five or six months pregnant, not Mary but Elizabeth herself, and she had just received word that she also was going to have a child, and even more miraculously than than Elizabeth was going to have a child. And so about three months earlier, Mary had made her pronouncement, her prophecy, if you will, her proclamation of of magnifying the Lord and thanking Him for being her Savior and helping the lowly and His mercy is on those who fear Him and, and all of that sort of stuff. But even though there's that distance of three months, Zacharias picks right up where Mary left off. And he, she spoke about Israel and the promises that God had made, uh, which he did not forget. And Zacharias mentions the same promises showing the events that he was witnessing were simply the fulfillment of earlier promises made to Abraham and David. And this is what fascinates me about this. And these folks' knowledge of their history and of their Bible, of their word, of God's word, and we'll see just how that looks in just a moment. Now, Mary called God her Savior uh, because she was a sinner and needed a Savior. Zacharias focuses on God's provision of the Messiah and fulfillment of his promises, of his promised mercies. He talks about the Messiah being a horn of salvation, a horn, H-O-R-N, not a car horn, but picture a, an animal horn. And that horn is, the, is, the, is a picture of power, of strength. Just imagine if you were face to face down the end of this church aisle with a large, big horn ram. You would be afraid and you would want to go out maybe out that side door or out that side door there because you don't want to face 
the bighorn ram. I just read a story about a man who harvested one. That means he hunted and killed one. That was the, the world record. A huge um, uh, ram, um, goat. And he, uh, I mean, it was, it was an amazingly large size animal. But that's what the horn is. It's a symbol of power. And so when you read the, the horn, he raised up a horn, or, or there be, uh, like in Daniel, the little horn, you know, that's not, that's not a good horn. That's, that's power, but that's power held in the, in the hands of Satan and the Antichrist. But here, God is raising up a horn of salvation. <clears throat> we'll look at that term again, again in a moment. Uh, Mary uh, talked about herself and her own situation. I mean, here she is, a, lonely, a lowly teenager, probably, young woman, uh, a very godly young woman, very uniquely godly young woman, highly favored among women. Her parents had taught her well. She was uh, a young person in the line of David through Nathan. Her forefathers were Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, as we saw this morning, and some of these others, great names in the history of Israel. And so she had that heritage and she knew something about that heritage. God had helped her. Zacharias gives attention to John the Baptist and, and the entire nation and its circumstances. So his speech emphasizes the idea of salvation. The idea of salvation in two dimensions. When you think of salvation, you want to think in two, you know, two dimensions. Maybe, you know, this way and this way, or really this way and that way. That's how we want to think about salvation. And, uh, to an Israelite, salvation would be thought of in these two dimensions. First of all, physical deliverance. Physical deliverance. And we don't think about this very much because, you know, we live in our little palaces called our McMansions and we have our jobs and our pensions and our 401ks and our social security and, and uh, all the rest of it. And we're just at nice and, and peace and all of that and uh, very little persecution. But people who live in a state of fear and persecution and uh, have their goods seized and uh, their churches burned and closed and uh, surveilled, and their pastors in jail, and all of these sorts of things, they think about physical deliverance. And they, like the Israelites, cry out to God. Remember when they were in Egypt? They cried out for deliverance, and God remembered them. You know, that's one of the things that, that physical persecution does for the believers. It helps them rely upon God and, and call out to Him for their supply and for their need. And so he thought about salvation like the Israelite did in this first dimension of, of physical salvation, of, of deliverance from enemies. And God will do that in the kingdom and in eternity. There will be no enemies that will overtake Israel or any of God's people. But a faithful Jewish person would also realize that deliverance from Egypt or physical deliverance is not enough. Is not enough. Bondage to sin is a greater problem than bondage to a earthly master. And so, deliverance, physical and spiritual, has to be both on our minds, both of those. Uh, you know, this deliverance, by the way, from Egypt drew them out of a pagan land to their God at Sinai. And it was meant to release them from the idols. I mean, think of Egypt. You know, the, 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 the Pharaoh is a god. Uh, the sun is a god. The frogs, the, the, everything. 
everything's gods, you know, out there. Crazy. But they believed that. And they were drawn out of that idolatrous pagan situation. But that still didn't save them in a spiritual sense because the Bible tells us with them, God was not well pleased because many of them fell, died in the wilderness and they were not able to enter into the promised land because of what? Unbelief. The Bible in Hebrews is very clear. They did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. And so, here's what happens. Many times people get the two ideas, physical salvation and spiritual salvation, mixed up. And they say, well, God saved all those people out of Egypt, all those Israelites, so they were saved people. No, they were, they were physically, physically saved people, but most of them were not spiritually saved. That's the sad testimony of that. God brought them through the Red Sea, brought them through that whole period of plagues safely, then through the Red Sea, drowned the army of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh, and they come out on the other side and they complain and they murmur and they groan and they want to go back to Egypt. And They were physically saved, but they were not spiritually saved. And even commentators on the Bible today say, well, look, there's God's people. They were saved. They don't make the connection that, that doesn't mean the same thing as spiritually saved. We've got to have that clarity in our minds. Israel, if you look at the whole nation, however many hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people there were, there was only a remnant that were truly born again, saved people that came out of, out of Egypt and, and, and then, of course, after the 40 years went into the promised land. A very small number of people. So don't, don't, don't tell me that the people of Israel are just like the church today. If, there's, if, if in our church there's only a Joshua and a Caleb and all the rest are unsaved people, that is not really a church. A church is to have born-again, regenerate membership and it's supposed to be a group of people who are trusting in Christ. Not simply people straggling along for some religious benefits and thinking they're the people of God. Okay, so there's a to- when you say the people of God is Israel and you mix in saved and unsaved, that's a totally different thing than the church which is only saved. Now, granted, there are some people because they have this confusion about Israel, transport that into the modern age and they have a church that looks just like Israel. A bunch of saved and unsaved people in the church. And then after a generation or two, they end up with a church that's totally unsaved and they don't know what to do. They have pastors that are unsaved. It's not, it's, well, it's just like Israel became. And so you have to be very clear minded about this physical deliverance and spiritual deliverance. Let's look at it in uh, Luke 1 67. You'll see the two sections here. It says, uh, His father, John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, there's physical salvation, and from the hand of those who hate us. This is very apropos for them. I mean, think about the conditions under which they were living. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days 
of our life. Now notice, there's the transition right there. He's talking about delivered from the hand of enemies that we might serve Him without fear. How? In holiness and righteousness. How does somebody get to be holy and righteous? Well, hopefully that's clear to us by salvation. Physical salvation that they might serve God in spiritual salvation. Verse 76, And you, child, now he's addressing his, his son, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways. Boy, that's a job description. To give knowledge of salvation to His people. Now, this is spiritual salvation because it says, by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Does that sound familiar? Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah chapter 9, those that sat in darkness have seen a great light. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So we start out where Zechariah started out, which is physical salvation. Uh, I'm saying, I say Zechariah. It's, it's actually in the Greek with an A at the beginning, Zacharias. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. Whichever way you say it, we should understand who you're talking about. So he introduces his speech in general terms in verses 68 and 69. God has raised up a horn. He's visited and redeemed His people. And I wish I only could wish that we had the time to visit all of these passages of Scripture. But when you read things like God has visited His people, that is a powerful word. That is a powerful word. That's more than you know, uh, uh, Tuesday night visitation program in the in the church. Visiting God, visiting is told us in Exodus chapter three. God speaking to Moses, I have visited my people. I have seen their trouble in Israel, and he's done. He did that in Exodus three and Exodus four, and then he visits them in Exodus thirteen and. Exodus chapter 20 uses the word visit again. That's actually in the Ten Commandments, a different context. That one says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of those who hate Him. So, those that's a bad visitation there. But these are, we're talking here about a good visitation. God visited Abraham and others in the Bible with good tidings, with good help. It just means not to, not to come and see, but to actually do something for someone. To do something for someone. And He also redeemed His people, like in Exodus 15, the Song of Moses, the redemption of God's people. And then finally, He raised up this horn of salvation. And I want to just I do want to touch on that just for a moment. And uh, just listen as I read in Second um, Samuel 22. David spoke words of a song and it says, The Lord is my rock and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. The God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So... I shall be saved from my enemies. 
That's a psalm, actually. It's in Psalm 18 as well. As for God, the psalm ends, or this, this portion ends here. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. And He is a shield or a buckler to all those who trust in Him. Psalm 18 talks about a horn of salvation. This passage talks about a horn of salvation. Those are actually the three passages that use that key phrase. But the same is used elsewhere. Now, Jesus would not be born for another six months, remember. And uh, nevertheless, Zacharias knew by the Spirit of God, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, 67 says, he knew by God's Spirit these things were about to come to pass. The house of David would once again rise to prominence out of its current obscurity. We looked at that obscurity this morning, by the way. You might remember we mentioned that Joseph was uh, a, des- a descendant of Jeconiah under that curse. And so, he was not actually the rightful heir of the throne of David. He couldn't be. It had to be another way. And God devised that way through the virgin birth, prophesied hundreds of years before it actually occurred. So, the house of David would rise again from the ashes, as it were. God will bring the tabernacle of David to a place of prominence. Amos chapter 9, 11-15 says... And so we come to the first of my several statements this morning about the meaning of Christmas. Christmas means God visits and redeems His people by providing salvation. Christmas means that God visits and redeems His people by providing salvation. Look at verse 69 next. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David as as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets who have been since the world began. What does that mean? That says that Christmas means that God keeps His Word. Christmas means that God keeps His Word. He said through the prophets that He was going to provide salvation for Israel. He said through Isaiah that it was too small of a thing that He would redeem just Jacob. But he said, I've set you for also a light to the, to the who? To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. And you will bring them who are of another fold into this fold, John chapter 10 says, and bring them also into salvation. He said through the prophets he would provide salvation to Israel, and now he was going about the doing of that very thing. To whom did he make these promises? Well, he made them through the prophets. But I want to keep reading here just a moment. That we would be saved from our enemies, verse 71 says, in the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. So we've got the words promise and covenant here. The oath which He swore to our father Abraham. Now We've run into two guys' names now. The house of His servant David. And now we've run into Abraham. Think of this. Think of this, if you would. Here you have Zacharias uh, around 4 B.C., 6 B.C., 2 B.C., somewhere in there, right around the turn of the B.C. to 8 A.D. In our, in our calendar. And he is saying, the promises that God made to, Abra- or to David 1,000 years ago, for him, that was 1,000 years. For us, It's 3,000 years. The promises made a 1,000 years ago, Zechariah says, God is going to keep them. 
What were those promises? Second Samuel chapter 7. David said, I want to build a house for God. And God said, not you, but your son. But instead, he said, because you have that in your heart, and your heart is a heart that is after my own heart, then he said, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Using a slightly different twist on the word house, he's talking about a, a dynasty, a kingship, a dynastic rulership that would go from David to Solomon and ultimately through his sons all the way down to the Messiah who would rule forever and ever. And God talks about that promise that he would have never lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And that indeed will be fulfilled in Christ. A thousand years before Zacharias. And then notice what he does. He goes on and he says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore... So he's defining what the holy covenant is. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Now he's rewinding his memory, not back a thousand years, but back over 2,000 years from him. 4,000 years from our present day. And he's saying 2,000 years ago, not only a thousand years ago with David, but 2,000 years earlier, God promised to Abraham that he was going to do some marvelous things with Abraham and his seed. And those are found in Genesis and several passages. Uh, the first one is in Genesis chapter 12 where God says to Abraham, Get out of your country from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great. This is 4,000 years ago, friends. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. <clears throat> it's reiterated in Genesis 15. Genesis 17, it's reiterated to Isaac. It's reiterated to Jacob. The fathers, the forefathers of Israel, of the tribes knew about it, the sons of Jacob. And all throughout Israelite history, you have this promise. Just pause for a moment and just think with me. You know, do you think that some of the people, after hundreds of years of silence from God, Malachi has closed the Old Testament? They've heard nothing from God. Do you think they would be encouraged by these words? That after long, a long delay, after 2,000 years of waiting for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled, after 1,000 years of waiting for the promises of David, God is going to do something. So the fact that we've been waiting 2,000 more years, it's not a big deal. It's not a, it's not a big deal. I still I hope, I pray that God will come even in my lifetime and in yours that Christ will rapture the church and return and unfold all of these things and we'll see them with our own very two eyes here. Our mortality will be swallowed up by life. That will be a wonderful transformation to undergo at the rapture. But whether it's 2,000 years or 2,000 more or however long it is, that's up to God. But don't fret because it seems to be a long time. God doesn't count time the way we do. 2,000 years is just two days in His sight. Just waiting a couple days to let, let things settle down. We'll get this thing straightened out soon enough. Isn't that strange? We're like, oh, you know, this year has been so long. Well, this is only a drop in the bucket compared to eternity, isn't it? The, the temporal weight of these afflictions is nothing compared to the glorious weight of that greatness that God will pour out on His people later. 
So you have David a thousand years, Abraham two thousand years ago, and Zechariah informs us that what's happening with John the Baptist is an integral part of these promises. Now he talks about his enemies, the enemies of Israel. You know, the freshly unmuted prophet uh, can't help but talk about the Roman occupation. I mean, think if your land was occupied by a foreign power. It's hard to imagine, perhaps, but it could happen even here. It could happen even here. The Romans, and by the way, not only the Romans, did you know that Idumeans or Edomites were ruling over Israel? Oh, that had to frost their cookie. Herod was an Idumean. How could they stand that? God, deliver us from our enemies. We need an Israelite king on an Israelite throne and an Israelite Jerusalem and all the rest of these Gentiles out of here. Today, many there are still who hate Israel. But Israel shouldn't look to its military prowess or its Mossad or anything else. Israel needs to look to its God. Israel needs to look to its God and trust that God will deliver them. And this is what Christmas means. Christmas does mean that God will deliver from our enemies eventually. And then look at 74 and 75. God's going to do this. Keep the mercies promised to Abraham, the promises to David, to grant us that we, being delivered, might serve Him without fear. Christmas not only means that God visits and redeems His people, it means not only that God keeps His Word, it means not only that God will deliver Israel, but Christmas also means that God wants His people to serve Him all of their lives. Did you read that? That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear before Him all the days of our life. Why did God redeem you? To serve Him? To worship Him? I mean, He sent His Son to redeem people from evil works that they might be a special people to Him zealous for what? Good works. Titus tells us that. So, God wants His people to serve Him all of their lives. And Christmas means that. It doesn't mean Christmas trees and trinkets and gift giving. It means God wants us to serve Him all the days of our lives. That's what Zechariah says. Good enough for him is good enough for me. Hope it is for you. But then he moves into a spiritual salvation, 76-79, through 79, the second major section of his speech. And he opens with a couple of verses about John. He says, You child will be called the prophet of the highest. So, John the Baptist was a prophet of the Most High. Cement that in your mind. Cement that in your mind. John the Baptist was a prophet. We kind of get confused about you know, the Bible sometimes. I'll try to explain what I mean by that. By the way, contrast John. He's the prophet of the Most High with Jesus. What is he related to the Most High? He's the son of the Most High. He's not a prophet. Well, he's a son. He is a prophet in a way, but he's ultimately the son of the Most High. Look at one one thirty two. Uh, there it says uh, an announcement to Mary, speaking of Jesus, His name will be called Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. John the Baptist, he acknowledged, you know, there's one that's greater than I. He's the Son of the Highest. I'm just the prophet of the Highest. Now, that's a high place. 
and you can't find anybody born among women greater than John the Baptist, you're not gonna you're not gonna find it. But you know, he was the prophet of the Most High. I want you to think of John as the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets. Think of John like Enoch. Enoch was a prophet, existed way back in Genesis. Jude tells us about this. Think of think of think of John like Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. Think of John like Elijah and Elisha. He's just like them. A prophet calling the people to repent, calling them back to faithfulness to God. Think of John like Jeremiah. John is a new Isaiah. John is a new Ezekiel. He's a new Malachi. He's a new Zechariah. He is a prophet. God has been silent for about 400 years, just like He was for some years before Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says the Word of God was rare in those days. But God raised up a young man named Samuel from his childhood who was dedicated to God from four or five years old to be a servant to the priesthood and in the temple and to be a prophet. God let none of His words fall to the ground, the Bible says. But John the Baptist was similar in that he would pick up where Malachi left off. In fact, in fact, Malachi says the Lord's suddenly going to appear at his temple. And if he's going to prepare the way of the Lord, there's going to be somebody to prepare the way of the Lord, and John the Baptist is that man. He is the prophet, the son of the Most High. There has been a quiet time in Israel, but the prophetic ministry comes back roaring like a lion in the voice of John the Baptist. Christmas means that God has spoken to humanity. That's what Christmas means. How did He speak? Not only by John, but remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, God has spoken to us in various ways and at diverse times in the time past by the fathers through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through His Son. Through His Son. And so Christmas means that God has spoken to humanity. By the way, all of this I'm trying to, to draw your mind to a unified Bible. I don't want you to think about the Bible as two separate books. Right? Okay, we turn to the beginning of Matthew here and we have uh, New Testament. You know, and I have one book over here and I have one book over here. That's not how you think of your Bible. Your Bible is a single unified book from beginning to end. And it just happens that after 400 years of silence, the Lord Jesus comes on the scene while John the Baptist does first. And he continues the prophetic ministry of Malachi and all those prophets that came before him. So Christmas means that God has spoken to us through John the Baptist and through His Son. Christmas also means that John the Baptist had a job to do. To call people to repentance. To tell them about the knowledge of salvation. Look at verse 77. To well, 76. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways and to give knowledge of salvation to His people. By what means are they going to get salvation? By physical deliverance? Not according to 77. By the remission of their sins. By the remission of their sins. He was the herald of the coming King. 
John the Baptist was a messenger saying, look, there's somebody coming. Now, we're the same, only not that somebody, well, actually, yeah, we could say Jesus is coming, but he has already come also. And so, Christmas means, like it did for John, that he had a job to do. Christmas means we have a job to do. Does that make sense? We're heralds of the great king. Christmas also means that sins are paid for and forgiven by the remission of sin. At the end of verse 77 says, and we can know that they are removed as far as the east is from the west. I said this on Thursday night. God casts the iniquities of His people behind His back. He buries them in the depths of the deepest sea so that we can say, gone, gone, gone. Yes, our sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea, that is good enough for me. I trust it is for you because it's buried in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's buried under a crimson tide, a crimson tsunami, if you will, that washes away the sin of all of God's people. So Christmas means that sins are paid for and forgiven. It means that sins had to be paid for because if not, then Christ would not have had to come. Look at verse 78. I know I'm hastening along here, but I'm trying to get through this, get you guys on your way home. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. My. These mercies are brought in Jesus Christ. Think, think, Christmas means all that we've said before, but it also means this. Christmas means that God has tender mercy. You have problems in your life. You have challenges. You have trials, struggles, difficulties. God has tender mercy for you. You've messed up. In other words, you've sinned. Yeah. God has tender mercy on you. God has tender mercy. That tender mercy drove the day spring from on high to visit us. There's the word visit again. To give us light who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Sometimes folks get a little blue over the holidays. A good cure is to get some sunlight. I got you, brother. S-O-N-L-I-G-H-T. A little sunlight. After all, Jesus is the day spring from on high. He's the light that dawns. He's brought guidance to us. It's like Psalm 119.105 says, you know, thy, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The entrance of thy word gives light. The entrance of the word, W-O-R-D, capitals, the Lord Jesus, that gives light too. He lightens every man. He came into the world. You know, without Christ, we have no release from those dark, gloomy, bitter enemies of sin and death. Sin held us in its grasp. It seems clear that Christmas means that God has given light to those who live in darkness. You know, those that don't have Christ, no wonder Christmas is a dark time. A dark time. But God means through Christmas also to guide us in the way of peace with God and with our fellow man. Now, we do not find here the true meaning of Christmas to include materialism, commercialism, decorations, and all the rest, although those aren't sinful if they're done in proportion. 
and uh, rightly recognizing that Jesus is the reason for Christmas, that Christmas starts with C-H-R-I-S-T, not X. We don't want to take Christ out of Christmas, but we cannot do that. We cannot do that. We cannot take Christ out of Christmas. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And Zechariah said, Blessed be the God of Israel. And then they explained why they said these magnificent things and blessings. And they tell us this, that Christmas means that God deserves our worship. Christmas means that God deserves our worship. Like Mary did, like Zacharias did, so should we. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that we've learned a little bit more about the meaning of Christmas. These are great blessings, Father. We thank You for Zacharias' words, this great blessing from a man proclaiming the greatness of God. And Lord, if we don't get anything else today, help us to get this. That like Zacharias and like Mary, we ought to worship God. That's the meaning of Christmas. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.